Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm David McKechnie. The chemical attack on a former Russian spy in the UK last week may have brought to mind the Cold War, but the challenges it presents to Theresa May and the British government are very much of the Brexit era. Britain has blamed the Russians, but why might Russia have carried out such an attack, and how will Britain respond? London editor Dennis Staunton gives us his take on the affair. Later on, Beijing correspondent Clifford Coonan joins us to discuss the extraordinary abolition of the country's two-term limit on the presidency. Xi Jinping now has his hands on China's levers of power indefinitely, but what will he do with them? But first, relations between the UK and Russia have been plunged into crisis following a nerve agent attack on former Russian spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter in Salisbury last week. The pair remain in critical condition in hospital. On Monday, Theresa May told the House of Commons it was highly likely that Russia was behind the attack giving the Russians until Tuesday night to explain how the nerve agent was deployed or to face consequences. This attempted murder using a weapons-grade nerve agent in a British town was not just a crime against the Skripals. It was an indiscriminate and reckless act against the United Kingdom, putting the lives of innocent civilians at risk. And we will not tolerate such a brazen attempt to murder innocent civilians on our soil. What might those consequences be and how will this one play out? I'm joined on the line by London correspondent Dennis Staunton. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Dave. Dennis, first looking at the at the crime itself, what do we know so far about how and where the scribbles ingested the agent? We know uh, that they fell ill in Salisbury, this uh, cathedral city, which is about two hours southwest of London in uh, in Wiltshire. Uh, they fell ill uh, about 10 days ago, and uh, they had been in a shopping centre. They'd gone to a pub and to a restaurant, and then they were found slumped on a park bench outside the uh, shopping centre. And it was discovered that they had somehow ingested this nerve agent. And uh, according to Theresa May, a very rare military grade nerve agent that's produced in Russia. What we don't know is exactly when or how was it in the car that they were driving in? Did the daughter, Yulia, bring it over from Russia inadvertently where they attacked in uh, one of the venues they visited? None of that information, if the authorities know it, none of that has yet been made public. But we do know that this is what uh, is, is what has left them critically ill and still 10 days later critically in a hospital. As you, as you mentioned, according to, to Britain, the nerve agent used uh, belonged to a class of agents called Novichok. Uh, that have been developed by the Russians. Uh, now, now, this morning, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said that uh, Moscow wants to analyse the substance before trying to provide answers about it. I, I think that makes it clear that Britain won't be getting the answers it wants before tonight's deadline. Yes, I think the way in which Theresa May uh, formulated the ultimatum, it was in the expectation of uh, of not getting a positive reply. Uh, Sergei Lavrov was suggesting that Britain was in breach of uh, an international convention on chemical weapons because it hadn't handed over a sample. Uh, The Prime Minister's spokesman this morning said that that isn't true, that Britain had fully complied with uh, with this regulation and that there was a a mechanism for handing over a sample, but it wasn't obligatory. So uh, so basically, I think the the expectation would be that when um, when the deadline falls at midnight tonight, we're talking on Tuesday, that, uh, that that there will not be a response from Russia that will explain exactly what happened. Now, th- this affair has drawn parallels, of course, to the state-sponsored murder of Alexander Litvinenko in London in 2006. Britain was strongly criticised for its response to that murder. Can, can you remind us what that response was? 
Well, for initially, it was uh, th there were some diplomatic expulsions. Uh, if we recall, this was in 2006. Alexander Litvinenko had been a, a Russian intelligence officer. He had moved to London and it, uh, had been criticizing the uh, Russian intelligence service in a very public way. So he was poisoned with uh, polonium, which is a kind of a nuclear agent, uh, in, a hotel, in a hotel in Mayfair. He fell ill. He realized what had happened and uh, started to explain to people before he died exactly what he thought had happened to him. Initially, Britain did uh, very little and they resisted pressure to have a, a public inquiry into the circumstances surrounding his murder until many years later, when finally in 2015, a public inquiry found that not only had uh, he been murdered by the Kremlin, but that it had probably been authorized by Vladimir Putin himself. And so after that, uh, you know, uh, in 2015, there was once again pressure to have major economic sanctions against Russia, which uh, Britain uh, decided not to do. So, for example, it didn't go after the wealth of various wealthy Russians, oligarchs who are close to Putin, who, uh, who've chosen to either live in London or launder their money through London or buy property here. So on, on this occasion, what what, op what options are open to Theresa May? Uh, will, it, will we expect some diplomats to be expelled and could that go right up to the ambassador or, or what other options are on the table? I think there are a number of options. I think, we, first of all, it's worth saying that this particular attack on Sergei Skripal is different and it's quite unusual because uh, Skripal had been, uh, he, he had been uh, included in a spy swap. So in other words, he had been imprisoned in Russia for selling secrets to the British Intelligence Service, MI6. But then he was released in 2010 as part of a, swice, a spy swap and then uh, came to live in, in Britain. Now, it's very unusual for intelligence services, once they get involved in one of these spy swaps, to actually effectively uh, welch on the deal and then go after this guy. And it's also, it should be said, that uh, this business of targeted assassinations by uh, intelligence services, wet work, as they call it in that trade, is quite unusual. There aren't actually that many intelligence services who do it. So what Theresa May said in the House of Commons on Monday was that this was, uh, if, you know, if she didn't get a different explanation, that she would conclude that this was an unlawful use of force uh, in Britain by, uh, by the Russian state. Now, that's a little bit below uh, an armed attack. So if it was an armed attack on the United Kingdom, then she would have all kinds of options open, including, for example, calling on NATO allies, to trigger Article 5 of NATO, which says that if one NATO member is attacked, everybody else has to come to their aid. So it's a bit below that. So what we're talking about here are diplomatic sanctions. As you say, she can uh, expel uh, Russian diplomats. Uh, one option would be just to expel those uh, diplomats who are basically spies under diplomatic cover, of whom there are plenty, and so she'd get rid of them. Uh, what she could do would be to go for a big eye-catching thing, which is uh, to, uh, to expel the ambassador and a large number of other diplomats. That would probably just trigger a kind of a tit-for-tat response from, uh, from the Russians. Then there are uh, very symbolic things they can do. There was some talk 
of what they might do about the World Cup, which is happening in Russia this summer. And the general uh, consensus seems to be that the England football team will probably go and play uh, in the championship, but that maybe uh, you know the, the guys in blazers from, uh, from the Football Association and members of the royal family and other dignitaries, that they won't go, so that they won't give it official cover. But the really big thing that Britain has at its disposal is the fact that Russian money uh, likes London. It likes London uh, because uh, it likes to buy property here. It likes to educate uh, its children in expensive schools here. And also a lot of these people use the facilities provided by the City of London in terms of lawyers, bankers, accountants, who uh, facilitate effectively the, the laundering of money from Russia. And, uh, and that's something that uh, Britain could do much more to target. Now, what they have already is uh, something which is called an unexplained wealth order, which has just come into effect a few weeks ago. And that's something similar for the, to the Criminal Assets Bureau uh, in Ireland, where if you see somebody who appears to have too much money and you wonder how did they manage to buy this stately home, this stud farm, whatever it is, this, these expensive cars, that if they can't explain why they got it, you can just take it. You can freeze the assets. So that's something that they could apply already without changing the law. The other thing which they're likely to do is to bring in a measure which is similar to the Magnitsky Act in the United States, which was brought in a few years ago uh, in response to the murder of uh, an accountant and whistleblower called Josef Magnitsky in Russia. And that targets specific individuals who are implicated in human rights abuses and wide-scale uh, corruption. And so effectively what you do is you put these people on a list and you say, okay, we're seizing and freezing all of your assets. We won't allow you to open a bank account. We will, you know, we'll, we'll effectively sanction the bank that tries to, to open an account for you. And that, you know, that kind of um, action could be quite effective against some of the people who are around Vladimir Putin. A report today I saw in the New York Times that cited British intelligence officials that said that Russia now has more intelligence agents deployed in London that at the height of the Cold War, I, I assume uh, many of them looking at some of, looking after some of those individuals you mentioned. Um, what, does that hold a threat for Britain or what, what kind of level of threat or is there anything Britain can do about it? Well, I think that's a, an interesting point because if you think about one of the, the mysteries about uh, this whole affair is why, if the Russians did it, why did they do it? Uh, you know, this guy, by all accounts, uh, Skripal, he was he was a retired spy. He wasn't much of a threat to Russia, given that he hadn't been, uh, you know, he'd been arrested in 2006, imprisoned until 2010, and in Britain since then. So he probably didn't have access to many up-to-date secrets. Now, he may have been doing a bit of freelance work, uh, either for the British intelligence services or for other people. But still, he wouldn't seem to be a huge threat. So what were what were the Russians trying to do? Now, one theory is they were trying to send a message to uh, other Russian uh, would-be defectors or traitors to say, we'll get you wherever and we have no fear and we'll, uh, you know, nobody is ever going to be safe from our reach no matter how late it, it gets or how many years afterwards. Another theory is that because uh, Vladimir Putin has an election coming up at the weekend, that this reinforces his image as a strong man. On the other hand, he probably doesn't need much reinforcing of that image. And also the outcome of that election is not really in doubt. And then another theory is that it's partly a kind of a testing of Britain's strength because 
Uh, the Russians perceive Britain as, as being weak, partly because of the weakness of the response to the Litvinenko uh, murder and uh, the calculation that basically Britain was too fond of the, the spoils of Russian wealth to actually really take any effective action that would cost Britain or some of the, uh, the city of London money. And the other thing is that Brexit has uh, has reduced Britain's influence. So one of the things that's been happening in the last 24 hours is that Britain has been uh, you know, running around the world or at least getting onto the phone around the world to try to get uh, support for, uh, you know, for some kind of coordinated action against Russia. And the results so far have been fairly disappointing. So the first thing was that uh, nothing much was coming out of the White House. And then Rex Tillerson, uh, as Secretary of State, said that uh, he believed that uh, you know, Britain was right and that uh, you know, it had good reason to, to blame Russia and that uh, you know, America would stand shoulder to shoulder uh, with Britain in its response to Russia. Well, then, hey, presto, uh, Tillerson is sacked by Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo is put in instead. Donald Trump today uh, gave a rather uh, a lukewarm response, saying, "Well, I see that Britain thinks that this is the case that they, you know, they uh, that they blame uh, Russia. Well, we just have to see what you know what comes out of all of this." So he was he was much less emphatic. The Europeans, likewise, although you had uh, uh, you know voices of support from the European Commission and from some of the other Brussels institutions. Europe is divided about Russia. There are, uh, you know, there are already sanctions in place, European sanctions against Russia, and a number of European countries would like to see those sanctions eased for various reasons. Some, uh, it's because some of these new right-wing governments are uh, close to Russia. They're allied to Russia in many ways. Uh, another is just simply the cost to, uh, to European business of these sanctions. And this is particularly uh, the case in Germany. And then a third reason is that that some European uh, governments believe that Russia is necessary. Uh, you know, a good relationship with Russia is necessary to deal with various other problems that they've got. Like, for example, how do you deal with Syria? How do you deal with Iran? Well, maybe you get Russia on side and you work out some kind of uh, way of putting pressure on on these countries. So that uh, the international response is, uh, you know, has been a relatively uh, feeble one so far, and that's something that probably ought to worry Britain. Yeah, on that question of Brexit, I, I, what implications does this in, in incident have for future security cooperation uh, between Britain and the EU? Um, and you know, in terms of you know, issue have some kind of a united front against common threats. Well, it's, uh, again, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that works out because what, at the very beginning of the Brexit process, if you asked you know in Britain or in Europe, what exactly does Britain have to bring to these negotiations? And one thing they had was money. You know, the Europeans wanted them to keep paying into uh, the European budget because if they didn't, there'd be a hole that would have to be filled by other European countries. And then the other thing was uh, Britain's. Security capability, which is, which is you know more effective, it's better, it's more advanced than most other European countries, but Britain decided that it was not going to play the security card. It was not going to use it as a bargaining chip, partly because uh, after a number of uh, terrorist incidents uh, in Britain, they decided that this uh, you know security cooperation was mutually beneficial, and it was something that Britain simply couldn't afford to uh, you know, to play around with. But what they did say, and both sides said, was that after Brexit, no matter what happened in terms of trade and everything else, that they wanted uh, a, a, a very close security partnership. Now, if the response from the Europeans to an incident like this is less than obliging, 
which it seems so far to be, then I think that doesn't augur that well for uh, the future of this uh, security relationship. Absolutely. Dennis Dalton in London, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Last weekend, China's rubber stamp parliament, the National People's Congress, voted through a constitutional change to abolish the two-term limit on the presidency, which was introduced in 1982. Now, President Xi Jinping could potentially rule as president for life, in addition to his even more important and also limitless role as head of the ruling Communist Party. What does one-man rule mean for China and the world? I'm joined on the line by Clifford Coonan, our Beijing correspondent. Hi, Clifford. Hi there. Could you talk us through, Clifford, where uh, power resides in China? From the outside, it's very difficult to understand. Uh, Why does it matter that the presidential term limit is lifted if uh, Xi Jinping already has an indefinite term as general secretary of the Communist Party? Well, um, it's also very difficult to tell from the inside sometimes where power lies. But um, in the last few years, it's become very clear that a lot of power resides with, with Xi Jinping. Um, As you pointed out, he's already um, General Secretary of the Communist Party, which is the the biggest role in in China. He's head of the military. um, He's president. Um, Both of those other two uh, positions have no term limit. uh, But until this week, uh, the president was limited to two consecutive terms. And this week they got rid of that. Um, those term limits, which means that he can now rule indefinitely in in the three most powerful positions in in the Chinese uh, in the Chinese political system. So what that means for the outside world, of course, is that um, China um, is is answerable only to the Communist Party and to its chief. Uh, Xi Jinping has made a lot of efforts to install himself as the most powerful figure. In, in the Constitution. His philosophy is ingrained now in the Constitution. So uh, it means that uh, China is now run with a man who has the most power since Mao Zedong, the founder of China. What do we know uh, about his motivation in making this move? Um, he obviously had a lot of power already and, and could potentially uh, have been head of the party for for many, many years to come. Um, is it to send a message to rivals or, or, or is it sort of some kind of vanity or, or what do we know about it? Well, um, it's funny because what you say, both of those answers are possibly correct. Um, some people you talk to say that um, often um, dictators or, or authoritarian autocratic rulers start to believe their own press after a while, um, which may be the case. I think that it's more likely to be a signal to his rivals within the party because faction fight has, has always been very strong within within these parties, that he is there to stay and that he's... Um, you know, he, he needs this extra flexibility so he can introduce these reform packages that he talks about, um, most of which are about keeping the Communist Party in power. So it's probably a combination of different things. So is that, is that the practical difference we, we might see some of these reforms? I mean, or might he crack down harder on corruption or on his, on his opponents? Or what change might this bring about in, in how he rules? Well, this week at the National People's Congress, which is China's annual parliament, we saw that he introduced um, a new... Uh, anti-corruption body, which kind of marries a lot of the um, of, of the powers that previous anti-corruption bodies had. Hundreds of thousands of cadres in the Communist Party have uh, fallen foul of the anti-corruption campaign so far. Um, and it looks like this is set to continue. And this is a way, this is a popular campaign among ordinary people who have always felt ripped off by by um, corrupt cadres and corrupt uh, government officials. So um, this looks like one sort of measure that he's using to maintain sort of populist control while also underlining his uh, central figure within the party and with, within the power structure. One of the other amendments approved last weekend was, was the addition of this 
political philosophy called Xi Jinping thought into the constitution. Is that just symbolic or, or what, what impact might that have? It's, it's more than just symbolic, but it's sometimes quite hard to work out what exactly it is. I mean, basically, you know, um, Deng Xiaoping thought is in there. Mao Zedong thought is in there. It's basically um, a way of saying that you are um, the most senior figure and that your, your philosophy on Chinese, uh, on socialism with Chinese characteristics is very important. By enshrining uh, Xi Jinping's thought into the constitution, it means that anyone who tries to attack Xi Jinping is effectively trying to attack the constitution. So it sudden, suddenly becomes a very serious matter. And this is, um, I think this is one of the reasons beho- behind why he wants to enshrine his thought. It's also about ensuring that his legacy as, as uh, China's most powerful leader since Mao Zedong um, is, is, is assured. To paraphrase that awful Trumpism, Xi does appear to be pitching his policies as an effort to make China great again. Is this how the move is being sold there in state media or, or how are they trying to persuade people of the benefits of this change? Certainly, there's been a lot of um, of, of sort of neo-Trumpism or uh, uh, Marxism um, plus Trumpism put together. It's it's about the China dream um, of creating a moderately successful society, um, and that the idea is that by 2050, which is the 100th anniversary of the foundation of China, well, it'll be the 101st, but you know, around 100 years after the um, the foundation of China, that they will they will be uh, a, you know one of the leading nations in the world that there will be a, a high, high degree of wealth among the populace. So he's really pushing this China dream notion of um, national rejuvenation, um, very strongly nationalistic. Um, it's also tied into foreign policy because China is, is um, looking to expand its influence in the region, and um, particularly in the South China Sea and in the East China Sea, um, and also play a big role in, in North Korea. So it's a combination of all these things together, which in some ways has parallels with Trump, but, but it's, it's a very, very specific Chinese um, notion as well about, um, about a great China, a strong China of everything under heaven. Given the censorship laws there, it is hard to tell how, how Chinese people feel about Xi um, and, and this move. But what sense do you get about, uh, about the, the feelings towards, towards the president and, and what has happened? I think he's he's a very popular president. Definitely, you get that feeling on the ground, and um, people are are um, they they back him very strongly. Um, on the other hand, I think when he said he was going to extend the term limits, certainly a couple of people I spoke to were were surprised. Um, some were disheartened, and some were saying he's not going to do that or he can't do that. You know, so it hasn't been entirely um, straightforward. But um, at the same time. Um, I think people are, they do back him and then this sort of propaganda machine kicked in. So all the social media, any complaints on social media were immediately shut down. Uh, any dissenting voices in the regular media and the regular state-owned media um, were quickly muzzled. As far as most people are concerned, there is no dissent. Um, so they're, they're, they're going along with it. Yeah, we, we all remember that this smiling, benign visitor kicking a football at Crow Park um, in, in 2012 if you take us back to when Xi mm-hmm. took power five years ago, um, he was seen then, if anything, as a possible reformer. Is that correct? Yeah, on paper, it looked like he was going to be a, an agent for reform. His his father had suffered under the Cultural Revolution, and everyone believed that he was going to be someone who would who would try and do away the excesses of of, of uh, the systems of control, maybe introduce more democracy. Um, very quickly, though, it became clear that the um, that the power politics and the real politic of of, of the of Chinese communist politics was was basically um, not going to allow this to happen. Um, he's become much more focused on this uh, China dream that we were just talking about, 
about making China great again. You know, we had Deng Xiaoping made China made China rich. Um, Mao Zedong made China, invented China, and I think Xi Jinping, um, is, his goal is to make is to make China great. Using that phrase, I suppose looking at Xi's relationship with Trump, um, Trump has he heaped praise on him since since he was fated on his visit to Beijing last November. It seems that Trump has been a bit of a boon for Xi, not only with with, with so little political experience. He does. He's obviously yeah. easily flattered and and also an admirer of of strongmen. Well, I think Trump likes winners, um, as far as I can see. And and one thing you can definitely say is that Xi Jinping is a winner. I mean, he's been a great success uh, in creating this fantastically powerful position for himself. Um, another thing is that China, a lot of its wealth is built on real estate, you know, and that's something that a, a real estate mogul like Trump can can understand. But um, yeah, it's been a boon for it's actually been a boon for both of them in that that Xi Jinping has been able to build this relationship, um, and Trump has been able to sell this notion of having a having a strong connection to um, to the leader of the of the of the great emerging nation in the world. Um, so it's kind of been um, it's been a win win as they say here uh, for both leaders. Finally, in, in practical terms, Xi is, is 64 years old. How, how long can we expect him to rule as president and party head? Um, not until his, his death, surely, or, or what circumstances could bring about him losing power? Well, theoretically, um, for the other two positions, general secretary and head of the military commission, if he falls ill, he's supposed to relinquish his position. Um, Chinese leaders are incredibly long-lived. Um, Deng Xiaoping was, 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 was able to have influence uh, well into his, into his 80s, even though he held no... Um, official position, um, so um, it's it's very much open, and it's all, it's a big question that everyone is asking: at what point he feels that his project is complete? How much of this is, as you mentioned earlier, is a vanity project, or how much he actually thinks that he can keep going? You know, introducing um, what the measures that he sees necessary to to create this China dream of national rejuvenation. Clifford Coonan in Shanghai, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks to today's contributors, Dennis Staunton and Clifford Coonan. The podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan with Rob O'Sullivan on sound. I'm Dave McKechnie. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on whichever platform you use or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening. 